Today's scripture reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 18, verses 1 through 27. In the Pew Bible, it is on page 59. That's Exodus, chapter 18, 1 to the end of the chapter. Exodus 18, starting in verse 1. Then Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and the name of the other was Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifice to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what, are you, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. 
every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, Dick prayed that you would stay alert. And uh, one of the ways that I can maybe help you do that is by throwing you a curveball. I think you probably think that you know how this sermon is going to go. You think it's going to go like every other sermon goes. Um, you've got it all down pat by now. You've got the pattern. You think I'm going to start in on a, a lengthy introduction in which I try to accomplish that unenviable task of trying to convince you that you need to hear this particular word from the Lord today. Um, before I deliver it to you, I have to engage in that exercise to convince you of that in a really engaging sort of a way. So you think that I'm going to get into all of that. And then you're probably thinking that I'm going to have maybe like a four-point sermon, and it's all going to be cleverly alliterated. You know, there'll be perfect symmetry between the points. But there will be asymmetry when it comes to executing those points because you probably think that I'll just uh, blow past the last point because I've run out of time, and I've spent all of my time on the first one or two points. So uh, you th I know that you think that you've got it all figured out. You think that you know me. Well, you don't. <laughs> You're wrong. I'm throwing you a curveball so that you don't get comfy, so that you'll stay alert. This is going to be a three-point sermon, and it's not alliterated at all. Every point starts with a different letter. And I'm going to spend all of my time on the last point. I'm going to blow through the first two points in a very unsatisfactory way <laughs> in order to spend the bulk of our time on that final point. And there's no introduction. Okay, here's the introduction. You need to hear this particular word from the Lord. Okay? <laughs> All right, good. So you're on board. Let's, let's go. Let's, let's get into it. This... This chapter is all about the Lord's work, what he's done in the past, and what he continues to do in the present through his people. And in some important ways, the book of Exodus is actually like the book of Acts, in which we see the word of the Lord and the work of the Lord just kind of speeding forth, spreading forward from Calvary, from that initial saving event, um, and from that initial community that met in Jerusalem, it's spreading to the Gentiles and even to the ends of the earth. And uh, 
the book of Acts, and this portion, well, really all of the book of Exodus, is all about what the Lord is up to. And here are three things that we discover in this chapter about the Lord's work. The Lord's work must be, number one, proclaimed. Number two, and I'm uh, squeezing in two points here, so it's actually a four-point sermon. <laughs> Confessed and celebrated. Sorry about the alliteration. And third, the Lord's work must be shared. It must be proclaimed, confessed and celebrated, and it must be shared. Let's look first at what we discover from this text, that the Lord's work must be proclaimed. And this has us focusing on the first eight verses of Exodus 18. I hope that you have your Bible still open on your lap and that you'll be able to follow through with me. Uh, as we get into this chapter, we see that there's a family visit on the horizon. Jethro's coming, and we, um, if you don't remember who Jethro is, thankfully we have a refresher here. He's the p priest of Midian. But, but perhaps more significantly, and I think we see the significance of this second identifier, seeing as it's repeated 13 times in our text, that is, he's the father-in-law of Moses. And he uh, is coming, and coming with him is his daughter, Moses' wife, Zipporah, and their two sons, um, Mo Moses' sons, Gershom and Eliezer. And so that's wonderful. Um, we were a little bit surprised by this because we weren't sure that Moses had been separated from his wife and his boys. And when I say separated, I, I know that immediately we think, oh, maybe there was some bad, maybe there was a bad deal there. Maybe there was some tensions and they needed some separation. But that's not necessarily the case. We're not exactly sure. Um, it hasn't been fully explained to us up to this point why it was that uh, Moses sent away his, his wife. It could, be, it could be as simple as uh, he was in some he was doing some pretty dangerous stuff. He was in some pretty, he was doing some very important and perilous kinds of work. And so perhaps he thought it was wise that his wife w and the boys for a time would go back to her homeland, to her family. We're not sure, but here is his father-in-law coming with his wife and his boys. And we have to ask the question, why? And I, I just said that we don't really know why. Um, we don't know the larger situation, but the text does tell us why it was important for his father-in-law to seek Moses out so that he could talk with him. And the text says this in verse 2. Um, he says... Oh, sorry, this is in verse 1. It says, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Why is it that this family came at this particular time? Because they had heard, they had heard the great news of the salvation that the Lord had wrought uh, for Israel, for their benefit, on their behalf, out of the land of Egypt. Um, how had they heard? 
And the obvious answer, even though the text doesn't say, is that people had been talking about this. The news had spread like wildfire of all that the Lord had done. Um, it had spread through all of these nomadic clans throughout the desert and the wilderness, and it had made its way all the way back to Midian. We'll encounter this as we move forward in the text and as the people of Israel um, confront all of these other people groups, it'll, it'll happen most of the time that they, these people groups will have heard about Israel. Their reputation will have preceded them. And more significantly, the reputation of their God will have preceded them. These, these other nations will be standing in fear, shaking in their boots when Israel approaches them because they know, they've heard what their God had accomplished and all of the great things that he had done for them in the land of Egypt. And I want to just simply make the point here that the, the Lord and his work are so amazing that that, that news has to be spread. There's a certain inevitability about it. It is going to spread. The fame of the name of the Lord is going to extend from the point of salvation. It's going to extend outwards into all of the ends of the earth. And the psalmist testifies of this in, in so many places. We're to proclaim the, the name of the Lord and the glorious works of the Lord throughout all generations and throughout all lands. There's a, there's a necessity, there's an inevitability about this. And I, I want to just um, camp out on that point for a second and make the simple point, if you're a Christian, if you have experienced the great act of God, the great work of God in your life, there is something really off. And let me put it more positively. There, there ought to be a, a real inevitability, necess necessity of you just having that good news on your lips at all times. You wonder, for example, why our sister Sarah Losey is so full of joy and why she's always proclaiming the gospel to whoever she comes across. And, and that seems like an anomaly to us. And in many ways it is. She, she's an example and an encouragement to all of us, but, but Sarah Losey is the, the normal one. Sarah Losey is doing that because she's a Christian. She, she has experienced this good news, and she, she can't help but to share it. There's an inevitability about the proclamation of the work of the Lord in the life of the Christian. But there's also, let me say this, there also needs to be intentionality about it. There needs to be intentionality, not just inevitability. Because our experience is, it's, it, for whatever reason, it's not inevitable. And we have to make concerted efforts to proclaim the great work of the Lord to our family members and to our classmates and to our neighbors, our coworkers. And I want to just uh, show you that Moses, this is what Moses does. He's intentional about his proclamation of the good work of the Lord. And we can see this in a couple of ways. The first way that we can see it, kind of uh, not so explicitly, but I think it's there, is we see this in how he has named his sons. He's named his sons Gershom and Eliezer. 
And the, the two of them kind of together tell a story. Gershom, we have the explanation here in verse 3, thankfully, because we don't understand that language. But uh, Moses himself helps us understand that Gershom means, and it refers to the fact that, that Moses was a sojourner when he was in Midian and when he had this child. He was in exile. He was on the run. Egypt was against him. Pharaoh was against him. And he was driven to this foreign land where he might be seek shelter, where the Lord might protect him. And that brings us to the next kid. The next kid is called Eliezer because Moses is saying and wants this fact to be remembered that the God of my father was my help. God delivered me. The memorial to that is that he's got this kid here bearing that name. So you stand Gershom and Eliezer up there, and there's testimony there. There's testimony about the great work of the Lord in the life of Moses in Zipporah. And I can relate to this a little bit because I have a similar situation. I have a son named Job, and uh, that, you know, that... That's been a cumbersome name in a lot of ways for him. I don't know if he experiences that, but we do when we're out with him, uh, when we're at different events and when people have to, like a receptionist at a doctor's office or some announcer or some substitute teacher has to call his name. And they inevitably say something like, uh, job, job. And we know immediately that that person, bless their heart, is biblically illiterate. That, that's a person that has, no, has never been confronted with the scriptures. And then there's people that will say, oh, Job, eh? And they, they know a little bit more, so they say, oh, he must be really patient. And we immediately know that there's a person that has only a very cursory knowledge of scripture. <laughs> We're still waiting for, for someone to say, oh, Job, eh? He must really abhor himself and repent in dust and ashes. <laughs> that, I'll be like, oh, okay, that, that person understands. But no, we named him Job because um, in that point in our marriage, uh, we had experienced a miscarriage of our first child. We had gone through the, the excruciating pain of that and uh, the book of Job had been an important comfort that the Lord used in our lives and then when Job came along we could see the message of the book of Job played out that uh, the Lord has taken away but the Lord has also given so blessed be the name of the Lord we called our, our son Job as a, as a testimony as a sort of proclamation to that truth and then, in God's providence, my wife and I experienced uh, a number of more miscarriages. And so you're, if you've ever wondered about why there's such a big age gap between our two boys, that's the explanation. And so when Jonathan came along, came along, by the way, as an answer to the prayers of his older brother for uh, a little brother, and also to the prayers of his parents, we thought it was only appropriate to call him Yah-Nathan, Jonathan, got given by God. 
He's a gift of God. We introduce our boys and we have a story to tell. There's a sort of proclamation and the same thing is for Moses. He's a proclaimer. He wants, he wants people to know that he serves a God that has rescued him, a, a fugitive. He once was lost. He once was a foreigner, but now he's found rescued by his God. And then I also want you to see the intentionality of Moses. Um, as you work your way through these opening verses, you'll see that there's a lot of, lot of um, customary kinds of introductions. Okay, uh, verse 7, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law. He bowed down. He kissed him. That's all very um, Eastern. It's all very customary. It's all, um, I, I don't, by customary, I don't mean it's just going through the motions and inauthentic. I, I think that Moses really, truly loved his father-in-law and, and bowing showed him the honor that was due to him. And then they asked each other about their welfare. Again, that's very typical, a kind of greeting. You ask, uh, you ask your, the person that you're greeting if it is peace with them, if it is shalom with them. And you exchange those sorts of greetings. But then look what happens. They went into the tent. Okay, and there you can, there they get past some of the, some of the introductory formalities. In the tent, they're moving beyond the small talk. And what do they get to? What does Moses intentionally get to? Very quickly. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. This is what they're talking about. They're talking about the work of the Lord. Yeah, you can talk. I, I'm sure there's lots to talk about, right? Moses is probably wondering how rule, how Jethro's flock is doing. He spent so much time caring for those sheep. How, how are the flocks going? Are they how, how many are you running? What are the numbers? Are they healthy? It's on and on. So many people, so many places, things to talk about. And we have that too. We, we're, we're, we like to know details. It's getting into hunting season. That's, that's what's going to be preoccupying our conversations. We, we want to know about school and sports and, and the weather and your health and all of this. But Moses wants to make a beeline for this topic of conversation. The great work of the Lord. Let me tell you all about what the Lord has done. And then I, you, you notice probably that I stopped short there. That's not, not all he's talking about. He says, they're also talk, Moses also is, is keen to report to him all of the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord delivered them out of those. That's That's amazing. Moses wants to talk, what he really wants to talk about is the great work of the Lord and his deliverance. And, and in order for him to do that, he's not going to edit anything. He's not going to just kind of pick and choose the story. He's even going to talk about all of the hard stuff, all of the struggles, all of the trials, all of the temptations and difficulties. He's going to mention the grumbling, I'm sure, the, their quickness to, their proneness to unbelief. Moses isn't going to censor or hide any of that hardship. And, and what's the reason? Because it's through that hardship and it's through the salvation that God grants 
through that hardship that God is all the more glorified. Listen, if you're editing out your story to just include all of the the nice, neat, fun stuff, what you're actually doing is robbing God of, of the glory. You know, from this pulpit, you've heard me from time to time uh, really dog um, Christian films. And I'm, so, I'm sorry I have to do that. Um, one, one of the reasons that I largely dislike that sort of a thing is because it, it presents such a... I, I don't doubt the motives in all of it. It's all, it's all for good motives. It's, it's, all to, it's all for the sake of proclamation. But, but what I have a beef with is that it's really sanitized and edited the, the type of thing that the, the Christian subculture thinks is appealing. And so, yeah, th- there's maybe a little, slight little blip of trouble and hardship but at the end of, of the movie, you know, people, er, everything's just peachy keen. You know, marriages are restored and everything's just perfect. And first of all, that, that's not always real life. But, but when, you, when you downplay all of the hardships in order to have a nice, tidy, neat little story, you're actually cheapening the whole thing and robbing God of all of the glory that is due his name. Talk about hardships in your proclamation and then talk about how the Lord has rescued you. And n- rescued you not in the way that, that people think rescue. You know, rescue doesn't always mean everything. It, it's not always the country music song uh, in reverse, you know, where you get everything, your dog back and your, your truck working and everything like that. Okay? I, deliverance through hardship doesn't necessarily mean no more hardship. It means that God preserves your soul and grows your faith and strengthens your, strengthens and increases your love for him. Well, I said I was going to blow through these, so proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the Lord's work must be proclaimed. It must be on your lips. There's an inevitability to that if you're a Christian, if you've experienced it. But it's also something that we need to be very intentional about, starting with our conversations. The Lord's work must, in the second place, be confessed and celebrated. And here, in verses 9 to 12, this is where we hear Jethro rejoicing, first of all, for all of the good. When he hears this, what's his, what's his response? He, he rejoices for all of the good that the Lord has done to Israel and for this deliverance that he's heard about. And then he speaks it. It's not just this feeling in his heart. He, he actually puts words to it. And he said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now listen to this, verse 11. This is his confession of faith. This is his profession. He says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. He, 
he recognizes the superiority of this sovereign God over all of the gods of Egypt. You know, Egyptians were believing in these gods and they were treating the, the, the people whose God was Jehovah with contempt. They were treating them harshly uh, on the assumption that their God was nothing and that he was powerless. They dealt arrogantly with the Israelites, but God showed himself to be powerful and, and supreme, didn't he? And, and here is this pagan priest. I want you to understand this. He, he is related to Moses, but he's a Midianite priest. That is, he is a priest in the service of some other god. And yet we find him now. This is, I think, maybe his conversion because he is professing for the very first time, confessing his allegiance to the, the one true God, Jehovah, who has done all of these wonderful things. And that needs to be said. That needs to be professed. I know that some of you, from time to time, when you um, kind of go through the, the membership process or whatever here at this church, you... Some people kind of uh, really resist the idea that we ask people to share their testimony in front of the church. And that is, trust me, I know, is a nerve-wracking thing. Okay, that, that's, it's hard to speak in front of, of people. And, and people wonder, like, why do, do I really have to do this? And the answer is, at the end of the day, yes. And not because we're a bunch of big meanies. It's because it's good for you to make that public profession of faith. And not only is it good for you, but it's, it's such a delight for us to hear you say, we, we, we don't know, it, it's such a, a humbug when we have to kind of figure out, is that person a Christian? I don't know. I, I don't know if they've ever said that they are, and yet they act like they kind of are. They come out. I don't. I, I don't really know what, what you need to do and what we need to hear you do is to stand forth and say, now I know that he is the one true God and now I believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has rescued me. That, that is, the work of the Lord needs to be confessed. And those of you who have been around in the last couple of months and have heard such testimonies wouldn't you agree with me that that is such a blessing for you to hear what a blessing to hear justin derbini for example tell us that he was for most of you know for for a lot significant portion of his life practically an atheist what what an incredible thing to have that young man stand up and say now i believe in christ now i confess the lord as my one true God. What about hearing our sister Denise Santa Jose Camargo Elvis proclaim in her native tongue something like this God is wonderful, He's infinite, He's powerful, and He's sovereign over everything and everyone. He is eternal. He chose me, and I know that His work is not yet complete. I am weak, my body is mortal, I am not perfect, but God is all I need. 
oh, how I love the message of the cross. And until Jesus calls me, I want to proclaim that message. And she did. She proclaimed that message to us. And, and understand that, that your profession of faith is maybe the first of what, will, what must be a lifetime of proclamation about the great work of the Lord in your life. If, if you're not willing to, to stand before a people that, that love you and are with you to proclaim and profess Christ, then you're going to have a, a much harder time doing what the Lord Christ himself has called you to do, which is to proclaim that to the ends of the earth. And then the work of the Lord must be celebrated. Look at what Jethro does. He, he brings a sacrifice. He brings a whole burnt sacrifice to the Lord. Out of, out of this response of, of joy and belief and confession, his instinct is, I, the, the Lord needs to, we need to celebrate the Lord and all that he has done. I need to sacrifice to this God who has worked such a powerful and glorious salvation. And so he slaughters and, and sacrifices meat and then they celebrate. They, Aaron brings all of the leaders of, of Israel and they sit down together and they rejoice in all that the Lord has done. Friends, this is what we're called to do as well. We're to call, called to remember and celebrate and rejoice our meals of fellowship, whether informal or formal around the table of the Lord, are designed for that purpose, to honor and glorify God for all of his great works. Okay. You ready to spend the bulk of our time The work of the Lord must be shared, must be shared. This uh, focuses on verses 13 to 27. And in verse 13, we discover that Moses, the very next day, he's back to work. And that's astounding, considering that he hasn't seen his wife and sons in probably months, maybe closer to year, I don't know. I'm pretty sure that I would not have gotten away with that, okay? My, my wife and boys picked me up from the airport two weeks ago when I was coming back from having been in Columbia ministering there for 17 days, which is the longest I've, I've ever been away from them, and it was excruciating. But imagine if on the way back from Rochester, I asked them to drop me off at the church because, you know, there's a lot of stuff to catch up on, um, I didn't have the guts to do that. You'll be happy to know. But I would be lying to you if I said that the thought never occurred to me. The thought always occurs to me because the work never stops. There's all kinds of emails and voicemails to respond to. There's people to visit. There's a sermon to prepare. The needs haven't gone away in 17 days. In fact, they've only just piled up on top of each other. By verse 13, the, the people of Israel have already started lining up outside of Moses' tent. They're waiting for an opportunity to talk to him. And when someone arrived, it was probably like a, 
DMV style system where they were made to take a number. And, and like the DMV, I'm sure that very quickly they, they lost heart when you know, they looked up and the now serving sign said something like, I don't know, A18, and they're holding the ticket that says L49. What were Moses' hours? Well, unlike the DMV, Moses was open from morning till evening. Okay, he ministered from dawn to dusk. And apparently those are his regular hours. If you, if you can consider this and compare it just against the previous chapter, you'll see that this is the same length of time that he was doing the Lord's work holding up the staff when the people were, were fighting. Okay, all day. Every day, Moses is engaged in the Lord's work. He's ministering to the Lord's people. And I want you to just briefly notice the, a variety of things that that entailed. First, it required him to be a judge. When you have a population of a couple of million people, there's bound to be disputes among neighbors. And, and it, would, it would require Moses to listen to the details and to decide, he had to adjudicate, who was in the right and who was in the wrong. Or maybe they were both in the wrong. And then there was moral dilemmas that, that would arise that required his wisdom and his insight. And more to the point, not necessarily his wisdom and insight, but these cases required the Lord's wisdom. You see how Moses puts it in verse 15? The people come to inquire of God. That's why they're coming to me. They want to know what God would want. And in verse 16, he says, I make known to them the statutes of God and his laws. So as a minister of the Lord, Moses isn't required to, you know, come up with all of the answers for himself. And that must have been very freeing for him. It is for me. Rather, the Lord has revealed his will and his way. By the way, th that's just a little sneak preview of what's to come in the next section of Exodus. Um, on Mount Sinai, the Lord is going to graciously reveal his laws and his statutes to Moses, and then Moses will give them to the people. So in addition to becoming a judge, Moses is also a kind of priest, you can see, who represents the people to God and represents God uh, to the people. Another way of saying all of this is that the people need discipleship. It's been the work of the Lord to save this multitude, but it's the Lord's ongoing work to, to sanctify them. And as a servant of the Lord, Moses is actively engaged, again, all day, every day, in teaching, in exhorting, in rebuking, in correcting, in training people in righteousness. And the needs are so pressing that Moses can't even take a day off to visit with his family and his father-in-law. So his father tags along to work with him. And I love that. That is just such a, a realistic touch. That's so relatable to me because that's exactly what happens when my father-in-law visits. Uh, when Jamie's dad comes for a visit from uh, Georgia, he's always quick to jump in the car with me whenever I have to run an errand. And it's always, I love that he does that. It's amazing. Be, not just because I, I love him, 
but it's also because he is like a, a mechanical genius and he's a master troubleshooter. And he's always pointing out stuff to me that there's no way I ever would have noticed. So for example, it doesn't even take to, we're not even at the end of our street when he says something like, it sounds like you've got a bad CV joint in your front passenger's axle. How long has that been going on? <laughs> and my answer is always the same. <laughs> I, I wouldn't even know what to, to l listen for. And besides, you can't hear any kind of rattle when you've got the tunes cranked up to 30. <laughs> But I, I'm amazed ha at how patient Lee Myers Clark is with me. He must think I'm an absolute dingbat. <laughs> he, he calls me Professor Dave, which, which sounds like a compliment, but really it's not. It's, an, it's another one of those, you know, backhand. It's, it's a very polite southern slam. It's a variation of bless his heart. <laughs> but I'm just happy that he knows this stuff like that because, again, it's not even on my radar. But it should be, because that's dangerous, right? Who knows how long I've been driving around with play in my tires. And if my father-in-law couldn't come for a year, you know, the wheels of my car probably would have come off. <laughs> Back in the wilderness, it's take your father-in-law to work day. And Jethro... By the, I know we don't have time for this, but isn't that just a perfect name for a father-in-law? Jethro. <laughs> Jethro observes Moses, and he sees all that he's doing for the people, and he asks, how long has this been going on? Why? Why are you doing this? What on earth are you doing, Moses? And here's Jethro's verdict in verse 17. What you're doing is not good. What, what do you mean not good? How can it not be good? It's ministry. It's the, mini it's the Lord's work. I'm leading, I'm discipling, I'm counseling, I'm helping. I know that's not in the text, but isn't that immediately what comes to our mind? When someone's doing the Lord's work, how could you possibly criticize that? How, how can you possibly say that what they're doing is not good? Well, here's what's not good about it. Moses is doing it alone. Alone. That's the key word in verses 14 and 18. And you put this together and Moses' analysis sounds very similar to God's analysis when he, engaged, when he saw Adam, the man that he had made, engaged in the work that God had given him to do. He's, he's doing what he's supposed to be doing, in, in, but in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God declares, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. And here Jethro says, it's not good for Moses to be alone. Moses, you need helpers. It's not good because it's not sustainable. Maybe Moses can maintain these kinds of hours for, I don't know, days, weeks, months, he, he can handle heavy burdens for a, a certain period of time, but eventually the wheels are going to come off. And the statistics say that the average pastorate lasts about three years. 
and that the and that the average you know the most common reason people leave the pastorate is they report burnout Jethro assures Moses that bearing that kind of load will certainly wear him out there's there's no question about it it's not even a question of whether it's a question of when going at it alone is not just bad for the leader but it's bad for the people do you see that in the text verse 18 it's to your own disadvantage that your spiritual oversight would be on the shoulders of, of one man alone. If you were to have the expectation that only the pastor can care for you, for example, then you're not going to just be wearing, wearing that guy out. You're going to be owning yourself. I'm, I say own like the kids do. Okay, you're, That's a self-own. You're, you're hurting yourself. Such a system, and, and let's just acknowledge that that is the system. That's the most common um, method and pattern of ministry in the evangelical church in America, single pastor. And if you don't believe me, you want a really interesting exercise. Just take 15 minutes and look through the, um, the, the pastoral job page where churches post looking for pastors on the Southern Baptist Convention website and just read what churches are requiring of the pastor that they, the, the next pastor that they want to call. And why are there so, why are there hundreds and hundreds of churches looking for pastors like that with that kind of a list of expectations? It's because they've got that kind of a list of expectations and they've just blown through five pastors in the last decade. Anyway, I'm, I'm off on a rant that I don't have time for. But th I'm saying that that is our inclination. That, that is the pattern. And I'm saying that that system is unsustainable and it's strife-inducing, both for the man and the people. On the other hand, Jethro tells us in verse 23 that his proposal is one that makes for peace and it makes the leader last over the long haul. And I, for one, am very happy to hear his proposal because I constantly feel that pressure, that, that burden of having so, so many good things to do in the work of the Lord, but never near enough time or energy or skill. I'm, I'm not complaining to you. There's all kinds of joy that's associated with this calling, but there's also untold, unspoken heartaches as you, as you minister to people who are going through various sins and struggles and brutal stuff. And there's, there's situations that, that you face that don't have any kind of apparent solutions, even though you hash them over in your head for, for months and maybe even years. And even the cases that are clear-cut in the sense that you know exactly what needs to be done, those still weigh so heavily on your heart because they affect people that you love. And on top of that, it's all the administration, the bottomless inbox, that looming lesson and then sermon, wash, rinse, repeat, on and on it goes. And whenever, by God's grace, you are able to do some good for a few people under your care, 
it seems immediately offset by that, that nagging feeling that, that you have. You just can't shake it. That more tickets have been pulled and that the amount of things to do and the number of people to serve is just growing faster than you can ever even get to. And at some point during the day, Moses looks out through a crack in his tent and he sees that the line is now wrapping around itself. And it feels, I'm sure, like a noose around his neck. And I know that feeling. I know what he's going through. And, I, and, I'm, and if you're wondering how I could possibly compare myself to Moses, that's kind of the point. Because I'm not even in the same ballpark as that guy in terms of gifts and ability and stamina. Even though at, at this point, he's like double, he, he's almost double my age. Moses is the most capable minister that you could ever imagine. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. So if he can't handle the load, who can? Who is sufficient for these things? Enter now the wisdom of a father-in-law. Jethro immediately knows what needs to be done. And I love this about old guys. All right, They've been around the block a time or two. Jethro's been the priest of Midian for quite some time, and no doubt he's been there and done that. And uh, old guys, they know that, that the key is to work smarter, not harder. You know, my first significant job was an apprentice to an old plumber in my hometown of Binbrook. Elwood Laidman was his name, and uh, another great name for an old guy, Elwood. And I was 17. He was more than ha twice my age. I was 17. I was full of, shall we say, urine and vinegar. And uh, my glory was my strength, you know. So if he told me to go shovel a pile of dirt, I would just attack it with gusto. And I would just give her full out. But then after about five minutes, I'm doubled over on the shovel, huffing and puffing. And then Elwood would come over and take the shovel in his hands and he'd put his thigh behind the handle and sort of push from his leg, one shovel full at a time, slow but steady. And if he had to, he could shovel like that for two, three hours. Work smarter, boys, he'd tell us, not harder. And what it looks like to work smarter in the ministry is to have a system, a, a structure, a division of labor. Jethro advises that, just like Joshua in the previous chapter chose men who would fight with him, Moses now needs to choose his fighters. And these men would need to be qualified. Look at verse 21. I don't... I don't have time to, to tell you these qualifications, so let me just point them out to you. Okay, and if you have questions about them, you can ask me. They need to be men. They need to be men. We could talk about that if we had to. And it's no slight against women. It's just this is God's design for, for leadership in the church and in the home and in, if you'll let me go this far, society. And you'll say, you might say, well, yeah, Isra but Israel, he raised up women leaders in Israel, judges and, and other heroines. And I'll say, 
yeah, praise God that he did that, but he did that actually to shame the men. He did that to sh- for, for their shame. They need to be men. They need to be able men. We're, we're not just talking about warm bodies. Okay, they need to be people with competency. Okay, they, they need to be... They need to be from the people, which I, I take to mean that they need to be a representative sample. They need to be men of the people, um, who the people know and can relate to. They need to fear God. Very important. In fact, this tells us that this list of qualifications is not necessarily in order, because if it was, this would probably be, be the first. It's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. These are people that need to hate a bribe. If you're going to execute justice, you got to do it in a just way. And you know how the world works, right? You know that there's a bunch of dirty people out there who execute their office and they, they deliver judgments based on whoever has greased their pockets the most. And if that concept makes you want to puke then you're a pretty good candidate to be a judge that the Lord would use these men need to be trustworthy a list of qualifications so Moses needs to choose these qualified men and then arrange them in a system in a structure so that it can be guaranteed that that people are being cared for and that there's going to be levels of checks and balances and that there's going to be opportunities for people to appeal to higher levels if things are hard or if they disagree. And the father-in-law recommends that these men be placed over people as chiefs of a thousand and others under hundreds and others over fifties and, and tens. And that, that system will give people access. Everybody gets access. And it would free Moses up to make best gift uh, use of his gifts. And he could just, he'd essentially be the Supreme Court, and he could hear all of the especially difficult, great cases. He could be like the Columbo or the House MD who gets called in for the real head scratchers. Jethro says in verse 21, like a, a true in-law, he said, that's my advice. You, bet, you should heed it. And by the way, I think the Lord is in it. And Moses, with his characteristic honor and humility, he immediately sees the wisdom in it. And he begins at once to implement it. He, he doesn't even modify the plan so that he can kind of take some credit for it. No, the text says that he did all that his father-in-law had advised. And the Lord was clearly in it because if we just track things through the new testament church what we find very very early on in acts chapter 6 is a similar problem arising again the work of the lord is great and his word is spreading Uh, the word of all that the lord has done is going forth to more and more people and more and more disciples are being added to the church this thing is even spreading to the gentiles Maybe even Midianite priests are coming to faith in Christ. But in all of that growth, 
some of the work of the ministry was slipping through the cracks. The, the apostles were just not able to juggle it all. And so they're dropping some of the balls. And at the end of the day, there was, there was still some widows who were, who were still in the deli line, you know, as the sun's going down, and they're still holding their tickets, and they haven't got their food. And with language that should now, by now, sound familiar, the apostle says, no bueno. This is not good. And so what they came up with was not exactly a new plan. It was, it was an old principle. It was a system. It was a structure. They chose qualified men to shoulder the load, which had the effect of freeing up the apostles to focus on what they needed to give priority to, which was the word and prayer. And thus, this quickly develops in the New Testament church into the offices of elder and deacon. Pastors, elders, overseers, those are t- all those terms are interchangeable for the same office. These, people are char- these men are charged with ministering to people's spiritual needs, caring for their souls, and, and deacons are given to the church to care for people's physical and practical needs. They are to the lead servants of the church. Men who serve as elders or deacons, they must be qualified in much the same way that Moses' men were. Furthermore, the New Testament expects that in each local church, there would be a plurality of men serving in these roles. Paul tells Titus, for example, that the reason that he left him in Crete was so that elders, plural, would be appointed in every town, singular. Paul also writes a letter to the church in Philippi, that local church, and he writes it to all of the saints there, including the overseers, plural, and the deacons, plural. My uh, recent trip to Columbia spanned over three Sundays, and on each of them, I preached in a different church in a different city. Huge, huge privilege to, to be able to get to experience that. And all of these churches are relatively new, and two of them were not yet full-fledged independent churches, despite the fact that they had very humble and godly and gifted pastor, each of them did, and each of them had over 100 people. Why are they not constituted as churches? We, th- we think, what are, what are you waiting for? Well, because the churches that planted these churches are absolutely convinced of the biblical and practical necessity of a plurality of pastors and deacons. And until those qualified men, plural, are in place, that group is not ready to be a church. They're not going to deal so cruelly with that one pastor to, to ever imagine doing something like that. And that is so commendable. And one of the depressing things about the church in Latin America is that they tend to adopt so many of the bad habits of American evangelicalism. But thankfully, they're not following our lead in this respect. But having... You've you've been so patient. I appreciate you. Let me just say this, and this is very important for you to hear, that having a plurality of elders and deacons is not the extent of the New Testament pattern 
for the care of souls in the local church. It's vital, but it, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Paul says in Ephesians that the primary job of those leaders is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And when you read the commands that come to the churches in the New Testament letters, you're struck with how many of them have, are constructed around the phrase, one another. For example, love one another, encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Those are not just duties for elders and deacons. They're for all of us. And so it's right to speak of the ministry of a local church as being an every member ministry where, where everyone is actively engaged, where every single person is deploying their gifts to build up the body of Christ. Where people don't feel cheated if, if, they, if they don't ha happen to have met with the pastor because they've had other people in their home, fellow Christians that have loved them and helped them and built them up in the faith. And I want to just publicly acknowledge and praise God for the fact that for the most part, we have such a church. I mean, for the most, most part. Yes, I do expect that the Holy Spirit is perhaps convicting you, maybe even right now, some of you, of sitting on the sidelines. You might be feeling convicted at this point, and I hope you are, to like fully give yourself to diving into the ministry here. But I hope you realize how gracious the Lord has been to us to give us pastors and deacons and members who are zealous for good works and who are keen to minister to those inside and outside of this church family. I want to publicly acknowledge how much I, I love and am helped by my fellow pastors, Jason and Dick and Matt. I, I, I couldn't do it without them shouldering the load. And I'm, that's not just something that I, I need to say. That, that's the truth. And I feel it acutely every day. I especially feel it when I'm off gallivanting in Columbia for 17 days. And the work of the ministry doesn't just continue. It seems to thrive. I, I, get I would get depressed if I went down to, um, that road too much. I'm likewise thankful to the Lord for our deacons, for Don and for Ron, for Mike and for, for Rob, for how they love the Lord and love you. I know, I know. But I just want to say, I, I just want to say, I also love you. I mean, what a, it's been the, the singular joy of my life to be called as the pastor of this particular flock. Such a wonderful group of believers. Members that are quick to visit the sick and disciple converts and counsel the hurting and confront the straying and in every other way building up the body of Christ. If you ask me, I think October should be set aside as every member appreciation month. That, that's, that's what I'm thankful to the Lord for. So may, may God give us the grace and the endurance to continue this pattern. And in this way, may the word of the Lord and the work of the Lord go forth 
unimpeded. If we share that work, then it, it's going to be both sustained and successful. And as we proclaim it, and as it is believed on in the world, and professed and confessed and celebrated, then I expect that God will be glorified through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen.